Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what is congressional capacity and why does it matter? As regular listeners know, almost inevitably, I have a guest on my show, but this episode, you get just me. The reason is simple. I've been working on congressional capacity for years, and I'd like to share my thoughts and hear your feedback. So let's get to it. It's probably not news to you that the American public is not pleased with Congress. According to Gallup, fewer than eight in 10 Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. For sure, part of this dourness amongst the public is really not about Congress. People are annoyed because of the media. The media focuses very heavily on conflict and crazy behavior by legislators. Rarely does it cover instances of Congress doing good things. And the fact of the matter is, Congress often does do good things. You just don't hear about it. That said, it is still fair to say that Congress is not doing well. Most obviously, it's failed to tackle some of the biggest problems facing the nation, like immigration. And often it sits back and lets the executive branch and courts wade into these issues, which is not how our system is supposed to work. The Constitution sets up Congress as the legislative branch, the source for all lawmaking in the nation. So what is wrong with Congress? Many scholars, media, and members of the public tend to diagnose the ills of Congress in terms of what I call the three Ps. People, parties, and polarization. So the people's critique focuses on individuals within the chambers. So someone will say, well, you know, the House is not working well because it's Kevin McCarthy's fault, or it was Representative Nancy Pelosi's fault, or it's Chuck Schumer's fault, and so forth. The idea is that the problem with Congress is you have the wrong human beings in there, and if you just swap in better human beings, you'll get a better Congress. Others point to the parties. Some of these critiques go along the line of, well, the parties have heavily sorted ideologically. You know, you have a party of red shirts and blue shirts, and they don't agree on anything, and all they want to do is fight. Others critique the parties a little more personal terms. The Democrats, it said, are too beholden to elite liberal interest groups and therefore are out of touch. People will say about the GOP that, well, you know, those congressional Republican members, you know, they're proto-fascist. They don't really like democracy. Their party is committed to crushing out dissent. They're into conformism. That's the theme of the GOP. Still others, you know, when they look at Congress and they see what's wrong, they emphasize polarization. Sometimes they emphasize the polarization amongst the American public. They say, we're red states and blue states, city and rural areas. These places have completely different worldviews. Congress is simply reflecting that. Others argue that, you know, if you see gridlock and lots of conflict in Congress, the problem is at the elite level. The people who are in the parties, who are in Congress, they're both out of touch 
with the average American. And they're kind of engaging this sort of fight club politics. So there's some truth to the three Ps. They get at part of the kind of fact of why Congress is not doing well. But these hypotheses all have their own shortcomings. I won't get into them here, but I will say that the one thing that they do not pay much attention to is that the institution of Congress itself is seldom part of their explanation. That's not their unit of analysis. Again, it's the three Ps. It's not the big I, the institution. It's worth here stepping back to try to wrap your brain around what I'm trying to say here. The U.S. Congress is an organization. It's a firm. And like any organization or firm, be it a business firm, a, a school, a music band, Congress's performance as an institution is greatly affected by its capacity. It can only do as much as it is capable of doing. In the congressional context, capacity can be defined as, quote, the human and physical infrastructure Congress needs to resolve public problems through legislating, budgeting, holding hearings, and conducting oversight. Now, you drill deeper beyond that definition. Some of the more specific aspects of congressional capacity are, for example, its funding, its processes for executing tasks like how do bills go to the floor, its technology for completing its work. How is Congress internally organized? Is it optimized in terms of its internal uh, divisions of labor? What's its leadership structure? How are these people selected? And what about its staffing, both at the member and at the committee and Hill staff level? Is it equipped? This framework, this congressional capacity framework, is something that I and my friends, Professor Timothy Lapira and Dr. Lee Drutman, this is something we adopted and which kind of forms a basis of our book, Congress Overwhelmed. And when you use this congressional capacity lens for looking at Congress, it's pretty illuminating. What you see in general is an institution that has experienced escalating demands upon it over the past 50 years, yet it's done very little to empower itself to meet the escalating demands. So let me first talk about the escalating demands, and let me get to the congressional capacity, or lack thereof. Over the past 40, 50 years, the day-to-day -day demands on Congress have skyrocketed. And some of these tasks that are put upon it are created by Congress itself, ironically. So, for example, by law, Congress must fund and oversee 180 federal agencies that employ 4 million civilian and military employees, and which administer thousands upon thousands of policies and programs which affect the public. Annual spending by Congress right now is about $6.5 trillion, which is seven times higher than it was in 1980, and a dozen times larger than the outlays by the world's largest corporation, which is Walmart. We expect Congress to follow that money. We expect them to know where it goes, and also to assess whether or not it's effective and that it's not being used for fraudulent purposes. That's a lot of work. Overseeing 180 agencies following $6.5 trillion, that's a big job. But there's more. There's more on this issue of the heavy demands on Congress. Let's consider the Senate for a moment. It's obligated to review and vote upon 300 executive branch nominees. 
you know, like Secretary of Agriculture. It also has to deal with thousands of nominees to independent agencies, the military, and the service academies, you know, like the U.S. Naval Academy. The immensity of federal activity, the kind of growth of the federal government over the last 100 years, and particularly over the last 50 years, has led to Congress facing more demands from the public. In the average year, according to a calculation I did a few years ago, Americans write email or otherwise contact Congress between 25 and 30 million times per year, which amounts to about 46,000 communications per legislator. And that's to say nothing of the escalating demands that are coming from the endless interest groups and lobbyists who you know are asking to meet up with members of Congress, asking to meet up with their staff, sending them communications and all that. Should also say something about the number of voters. The number of Americans has gone up about 45% since 1980. So that's 45% more people that members of Congress are supposed to represent and respond to. The average member of the House of Representatives now has about 760,000 constituents. Yet, he serves them with staff of fewer than 20. And the situation is even more challenging in the Senate, since there are only 100 senators who have to serve collectively about 330 million Americans. So the demands of Congress have gone up, 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 up over the last 40 years. But, and here's where I get to the next piece, there's been very little congressional reform to bolster capacity to handle the increase in demand, the increase in work. The last major reforms of Congress took place in the early 1970s. And crazily enough, about 30 years ago, the people on Capitol Hill thought the public would be pleased if they downsized the workforce of the legislative branch. Really, that was the thinking at the time. So today, legislators in Congress have fewer staff, about 10,000 total, than they did in 1980 when they had 11,000. And when you think of staff, you shouldn't think about like grizzled 20-year veterans of the Hill who've been there forever and know all their ins and outs. Those people exist, but they're the exception to the rule. The average Hill staffer is 25 to 29 years old, and most of them will stay on the Hill six or seven years, and then they'll quit. They will go work either in the executive branch or they'll go off to the private sector where they can get paid more and not have to work such crazy hours. Congressional committees, speaking of staffing, they're supposed to be the engines for policymaking and oversight. They also have fewer staff than they used to. They had 3,100 staff in 1980. They're down to 2,300 staff today. Congress also has fewer nonpartisan experts who work for it at places like the Congressional Research Service, the Government Accountability Office, and the other legislative branch support agencies. Their job is to help legislators make policy and to conduct oversight Yet their number has gone down from 11,400 in 1980 to 7,000 today. I wish I could say that the capacity problems in Congress ended there, but that would be lying. The capacity problems run throughout the institution. Consider the committee system. That is the division of labor within the organization. Which committees work on what topics? That has really changed very little over the past 50 years, despite the world changing an awful lot. Remarkably, 
when you're speaking of these committees and the leaders of them, the chairpersons, in the House of Representatives, the people who get to become chairs are selected based heavily upon the fact that they are good at fundraising and they're dependable partisans. They're good Democrats or good Republicans. Whether they actually know something about a topic, whether they're good at bargaining with members of the opposite party, whether they're sincerely interested in making policy and doing good oversight, those criteria are in the mix, but they're not at the top. And going further on this issue of committees, because they're just so important to Congress being able to do its job as a lawmaking body, the way committees hold hearings today looks like it did 75 or 100 years ago. You have legislators sitting up on the dais uh, with Republicans on one side and Democrats on the other, and there's witnesses below at a table, and each witness gets you know three minutes or five minutes to deliver a speech. And then people up in the dais lob questions at them, and then ultimately the hearings gavel down, and they leave the room, and that's it. When you think about a hearing, you know you would hope that a hearing was a place where members brought in people to learn from them, but you look at the structure, and this is really not particularly well designed to encourage learning. In fact, what it tends to encourage is uh, performance and partisanship and, and other things that are not so great. Anyway, let's talk some more about the capacity shortfalls. Work process, legislative process in particular, budget process. We have seen so many times bills that can't get a vote. We have seen government shutdowns because appropriations laws are not being passed. We have seen Congress not adopt a budget, even though that is part of its budget process. We may be facing another shutdown in early 2024 or later 2024. We've got a budget process that is 50 years old and does not incentivize people to do the hard work of making trade-offs, doing what budgeting requires, and members tend not to follow it. Yet, they haven't fixed that. They haven't replaced that process. How can we expect them to budget better if they're still using an old budget process that clearly doesn't work. And just to add one more thing in there, I'd be remiss if I did not talk to you about the technology Congress has to do its work. Newly arrived legislators are often shocked at the sorry state of the technology they have. They're baffled that they are given bills as PDF files, and these PDF files do not come with track changes, so they have no idea who's been writing these various provisions, nor do they come with hyperlink type references, so that if the bill says something like strike 39 USC 101D subpart 1 subpart C, those are just words on the page. What do they mean? The document won't tell you. A legislator has to go look it up. They're baffled. This is such an easy thing to fix. Why is it this being done this way? I also got to tell you an anecdote. A few years ago, I was talking with a legislator, and he said he was astonished that when he showed up to Congress to work in the House of Representatives, he was handed on his first day on the job a pager, one of those you know electronic beeper things. And he looked at it and was baffled, like, wow, what, what is this thing for? And the response he got was, well, this is what we use to notify members of Congress when it's time for them to vote. 
And his response was something along the lines of, why isn't there an app for that? And he didn't have a good, get a good answer. So technology, work processes, internal division of labor, you name it, congressional capacity is not where it needs to be. Now, let me close, as I've been talking a time for you, and say that not everything is bad with respect to congressional capacity on the Hill. There have been some improvements. A few years ago, there was created a select committee on the modernization of Congress that was inside the House of Representatives, and it began studying in a bipartisan fashion all these problems and trying to figure out solutions to them. And it made a huge number of recommendations. And in the past year, that select committee shut down, but then it was reborn as a subcommittee in the House Committee of Administration. And it is continuing the work. So improvements are getting made. Capacity is being worked upon. But a lot of it is very small ball, which is not to denigrate it, but which is to say that big things like the division of labor, what committees do what, how many committees do we have, what are the processes for bringing bills to the floor, how can we fix the budget process. The bigger things have not been tackled yet, but at least some of the smaller stuff has been worked upon. And you could certainly see that if you go out online and look for Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress uh, or go to the Committee on House Administration's website, and you can kind of find some reforms that have been passed there, see what the state of implementation is. So let me close this off and end this podcast by saying, you know, look, Congress has got its issues. The hypotheses known as the three Ps of people, parties, polarization, those are all part of the picture and they're important parts of the picture and we need to figure those things out. But we also got to deal with the capacity issue. Congress is supposed to be the first branch of our constitutional republic, the source for all lawmaking. It's supposed to be the place where we Americans engage in self-governance and we work across and through our differences. It's the only real venue we have for that. You can't do that in the legislative branch. And if you do it in the courts, it's just an adversarial process and you ultimately get a judge making a decision, which doesn't feel like self-government. So I hope you find this discussion of congressional capacity persuasive, or at least intriguing. And please, as I said earlier, I'd love to hear your feedback. So reach out to me. I'm easy to find online. Thank you. And have a good day. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.